Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Peters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast here. We are seeking to bring you the very best in Christian apologetics. Today is no exception. There is a lot going on right now. Here, uh, Halloween is coming up. It's a very big holiday, and I say one that my wife particularly enjoys. I'm sure it's got nothing whatsoever to do with going out and buying candy around this time of year. And then we've got the movies coming out, like the Hollywood movie Ouija, Ouija just came out recently, I think just this weekend, and so people are wondering, hey, uh, what's going on with this? Is this anything that uh, we need to be concerned about? And now I've made it my principle here to uh, not really study the occult, because Gary Habermas years ago advised me, he said, don't get into it, it's too dangerous. And if you start studying it from their sources, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. You need to talk to someone who's come out of it. And in fact, you know what? That is a good idea. How about talking to someone who has come out of it? So, in order to do that, I decided to talk to Marsha Montenegro today. Here's her story a little bit. Proud of trusting Christ, Marsha was involved for many years in Eastern and New Age beliefs and was a licensed professional astrologer for eight years. During that time, she also taught astrology and was president of the Metropolitan Atlanta Astrological Society. Marsha has a master's in religion from Seven Evangelical Seminary, Charlotte, North Carolina, and is a missionary with Fellowship International Mission. Through her ministry, Christian Answers with New Age, she has spoken in 30 states and is a frequent guest on radio and has published articles in several Christian publications, informing Christians about the New Age as well as reaching out to those who are part of it. Marsha is the mother of an adult son and is the author of Spellbound, the paranormal seduction of today's kids. So, uh, Marsha, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Oh, hello, Nick. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. And I really do want to point out to everyone that I hope this uh, podcast is coming through. As it is, I'm actually using the computer at my parents' house. who live right next door and they're out and they said, hey, you can come up and use it because... My wife's using it for an event going on right now, and I thought before we big out of the show, Marsha, you know what this event is. Could you tell a little bit about it, and maybe next year more people will even want to attend it? Sure. Uh, this is a online conference um, sponsored by Women uh, in Apologetics and also by um, the Athenatus uh, Ministry of Anthony Athenatus. Um, who has been uh, really an instigator behind it, and the International Society of Women in Apologetics. So the conference is called Women Equipping Women and is covering a range of topics. Um, I did a talk yesterday on the New Thought Movement, and it was very nice because the people who register can go into the into an online room, so to speak, and can interact with the speaker. And that's what happened when I spoke. And it's continuing on to today into the afternoon. And I think so far the uh, feedback has been very positive. And this, from what I gather, is a yearly event, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. I think this is the first time, however, that uh, the conference has just been women women apologists so this this was kind of a first um in that sense so all you women out there that are listening you're saying 
you know, I'm a mother, I raise kids, I don't have time to travel to Charlotte or wherever else these conferences are held. No problem. You can do this all from your home and for us it only costs twenty one bucks. The rates are very reasonable and you can interact with women and I, I really think this is something incredible. I think it's great that women are doing this. But let's get to you now, Marsha. Normally at this point I ask my guests about how they got to be doing what we're doing, more personal intro, but you, I think we need something more in depth because the story of where I got into the occult, when I came out of it, just doesn't seem to go into it enough. Tell <laughs> us the background story here. How did you get into the occult to begin with? Sure, I would love to share that. Uh, it was really gradual, which I think is true for a lot of people. I had an interest in, oh, probably even like the eighth or ninth grade in what we call the supernatural and astrology intrigued me a lot. And this continued in high school. I was interested in the so-called powers of the mind, like, you know, ESP, extrasensory perception, uh, psychic powers, contact with the dead. Now, I had all of these interests um, despite my exposure to various churches that my mother would take me and my sister to. Now, we lived overseas a lot when I was growing up, so I didn't have any kind of consistent church contact or denomination at all. In fact, overseas, it was in one place just a general Protestant kind of thing. And so I, my, my interaction with Christianity, although in high school I was going to church, uh, was really on a very shallow level. I was not a Christian. I was open to other spiritual ideas and decided that I would explore them once I got away from home and got into college. And so to a certain extent, I did explore them. And I also got very interested in Eastern religions in college when I did an independent study on Gandhi and had to read his biography. And then I also read a book that influenced him. And I was very, very taken with Gandhi and his ideas. And I was interested in Hinduism at that point and Buddhism although I didn't really explore them till after college. So I was sort of on a, a two-track thing. One was the supernatural, and one was the Eastern religions. And, in fact, in college I had even more time to explore the supernatural aspect and talk to other students who had the same kind of interest. And that led to me spending much more time after college doing a lot of reading, and then now and then going to a psychic, um, an astrologer, uh, then becoming involved with a group. Uh, well, I took a course actually called Inner Light Consciousness. It was sponsored by a group that lived in southwestern Virginia. At the time, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, southwestern Virginia... Uh, still, even today, is full of a lot of New Age groups and cults. It's It just is um, amazing down in that area that, 
you can find a lot of that. <laughs> so apparently, um, back when I was getting involved with uh, this course, Interlight Consciousness, and they were headquartered there, that was already true at that time, too. And this course uh, got you interested in this kind of supernatural level where they told us that we could, uh, for example, heal people psychically with our minds. Um, we also did guided meditations. This is when the leader would have everybody do relaxation techniques and have the lights in the room uh, very dim and you would be lying on the floor or sitting in a comfortable chair and close your eyes and the leader would guide you through a meditation and this happened every night during this course and on the last night uh, we were told we would meet our spiritual master and so we were very excited because this was sort of the highlight of the whole course. And uh, he told us that our spiritual master would be with us the rest of our lives and that we would be able to contact the spiritual master directly and he or she would be able to contact us and that initially we would have to do it through the meditation. Um, but later the contact could be direct. So I was very excited and at, at, we did the guided meditation as we usually did, but at the end, he added something onto it that was different. And in this particular part of it, um, we were led to meet our spiritual master. And after this was all over, we shared what had happened. And as I recall, all of us, did meet somebody. I think that there was about maybe 12 people, 10 or 12 people in the group. So it was a rather small group. And I saw my quote-unquote spiritual master. Now, of course, we understood that this was a disembodied um, entity. This was not a person in flesh and blood. We didn't expect somebody to walk into the door. We knew this was going to be um, something disembodied and in in my mind this was a a um, person who had lived many many lives on earth and had now reached an advanced stage to be a guide for others and that was who that's how I saw the spiritual master which is really another term for spirit guide and at that point, after meeting my, my so-called spiritual master, I really did feel his presence and continued to feel his presence throughout my time in the New Age. And so I, this point was like a big turning point for me because after this happened, it seemed like there was just a flood of things that came my way and it's kind of like the gates opened up and I was totally open to all kinds of things and meeting people um, involved in different areas of the New Age and the occult and Eastern religions. I got involved briefly with a Tibetan Buddhist group in Atlanta and I learned how to do the Tibetan Buddhist meditation. And then I went into Zen Buddhism and I was reading a lot of books on Zen Buddhism and practicing the Zen meditation. And at the same time, I started taking classes 
um, at a place called the Foundation for Truth. And what they taught there, more or less, were pretty much occult type of techniques like astrology, numerology, um, palm reading. They had past life regression classes, which I took. Uh, so it was kind of a combination of these New Age ideas and occult practices. And I took psychic development classes as well as astrology. And astrology really captivated me. And I decided I wanted to really immerse myself in it. I wanted to learn it. So I had to force myself to learn the initial classes, all math. And you have to learn these formulas for calculating a birth chart based on the time and place. Um, any time, any place that's given, um, usually in the, you know, in the pre- in the century, which at the time was the 20th century. And you have to learn the formulas for setting up the chart. And it, the, the mathematical formulas are real. I mean, it is actually math that you are learning and using um, in this process. And you're using a book that gives the position of the planets at Greenwich Mean Time. And you have to do formulas to make it fit the time of birth depending on the time zone, et cetera. It's very, very technical. So all of that was quite a challenge to me, but I I learned it, and then we went on and learned interpretations of the planets. And I do want to point out, because I'm often asked about the difference between astrology and astronomy, or people get them mixed up. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about it. Yeah, you're not talking about what people like my friend Hugh Ross get into, right? Uh, right, I'm not talking about, right, I'm not talking about the scientific study of the planets and the stars and, you know, the space. Um, that is astronomy. Astrology takes some of the data that you, you can get in astronomy, but astrology believes that there is a meaning behind these heavenly bodies usually the planets and the sun and the moon most often, although astrology will also use some of the asteroids and maybe some other aspects um, of what's in space, but mainly it's the planets and the sun and the moon that are used. And so astrology believes that the position of these planets at the time of your birth are a blueprint for your life, and they believe that they represent things about you, about what you've brought into this life, about your um, talents, the influences that will come from your childhood, uh, your relationship tendencies, your career tendencies, etc. basically your whole life. And so learning how to interpret the chart involves learning what all these planets uh, mean uh, what they mean in each zodiac sign, like you know, having the moon and Aries in your birth chart is very, very, very different from having the moon and Virgo in your birth chart. And if it's in the first house, it's very different than the twelfth house, etc. Because the chart's divided into twelve areas, twelve houses. So the the chart is this very complicated thing that you learn to interpret, and that's what I was really, really focusing on at this point in my life. And I was still doing the 
Zen meditation and reading Zen material, I was still interested in things like communication with the dead, which had been one of my real big interests when I first got out of college. I did a lot of reading on that and on reincarnation. I believed in reincarnation. I believed that, you know, we all die and then come back, and we do that over and over again for, you know, probably thousands of years, and that the purpose of this is to learn your lessons and spiritually evolve. And you're evolving towards this point where um, you are able to not come back anymore to Earth because Earth is like the learning place. It's like the school, but it's a place also that is like a trap because you aren't really totally free here on Earth. So there's this this desire to spiritually advance. Now, the, the problem with that is that no one really knows what you're advancing towards <laughs> because um, different people had different teachings on it. So I heard, you know, I heard different things. I heard the Tibetan Buddhist view of what happens after death. I heard, you know, the um, I knew the Hindu views. And then I heard a lot of New Age views about where you go and, you know, what the ultimate goal is. And, and I kind of had a vague idea that the ultimate goal was that you would eventually merge with God. And God is not a personal being, but God is this impersonal um, kind of force or energy and we all came, we all came from this energy. We all came from God and eventually we would all go back. But of course, when you go back and merge, merge with this God energy, you no longer have your individuality. You know, you are no longer um, John Smith. You know, you are no longer Nick Peters. You are part of this, this, this God energy. And what, what is that like and what does that mean? Well, nobody really knew, of course. And I found that a little disconcerting because, um, I think all of us, uh, most of us, uh, you know, if we're, if we're pretty normal individuals, we are attached to ourselves as having our own individual identity. And the idea that this is going to be completely lost is usually not appealing, especially to people in the culture of the United States, mm-hmm. which is a very individualistic culture. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't real excited about that, but I figured that by the time I was ready to merge with this God energy, that I would have reached the point where I wanted to. So that's how I rationalized it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't think about it all that much, you know, but but I did think about it sometimes. So I continued on this path, and I actually became a professional licensed astrologer. Atlanta at the time had a um, an exam, which had been set up by the astrologers and the city to regulate the practice of astrology in order to keep out people who didn't really know astrology. And so you had to show you knew astrology in order to practice legally and you took an exam and then if you passed you go down to the uh, license 
the city licensing office and you paid for a business license. And so that's what I did in 1983. The exam was seven hours long. It was a very hard exam. Only half the people passed it, which was the normal um, pass-fail rate was 50%. And then I bought a license and started practicing professionally. At this point, I was married and I had a son who had been born in 1981. Now, I practiced on people with astrology before I got my license um, just to, you know, so I could learn. And so by the time I got my license, I had already done it for about two years, close to two years of practicing on people. And I started getting clients and that, that continued to grow because it was mostly word of mouth. And as I was doing all of this, I was continuing in, in other areas as well. I had also studied a little bit um, on numerology. I had taken a course on palm reading, although I wasn't really good at that. I had um, what are called tarot cards, which are cards with images on them. And you lay out the cards in a certain pattern for a person, and then you interpret the images. So I didn't know a lot about tarot, but someone had given me some cards, and I was reading about them, and I knew some things. I didn't really use them. I didn't try to do readings for people, but I was trying to learn the cards. I had friends who did tarot card readings. I had friends who were astrologers. I also met um, several groups of Wiccans um, or witches. Uh, I mean, I don't know that they would necessarily use the term Wicca, but Wicca is sort of a modern religion of of what is called witchcraft that was started by Gerald Gardner in England in the 30s and 40s. And I think in 51 it was officially recognized in the UK as a religion. And then it was brought over to the United States in 1963 by a follower of Wicca named Raymond Buckland. And he started several groups here in 63 in the United States and that kind of spread and then there were different people who did their own spin on it so to speak and so it has a lot of different facets it's not a centralized um, movement at all it's a modern neo-pagan religion and there were several of these groups in Atlanta and I came across uh, some people involved in them and they would ask me to do astrology readings for them. And then the word would get around to other people who were into Wicca or witchcraft. And I, so I had a lot of clients and friends, plus my chiropractor was um, a witch. And my chiropractor, who was very, very popular uh, and had a lot of clients, told them all about me <laughs> and gave them my business cards. So I got a lot of clients through, through her. And, you know, my, my practice was pretty, a pretty good practice. I did make a lot of money because I didn't do charts all day. You know, I would do maybe, um, anywhere from four, uh, maybe four to ten at the most a week, perhaps. And, um, so, you know, this was kind of a, I was working part time for a while. And then when I got enough clients, I was just doing astrology. And this, you know, went on for several years. I was very 
hostile to Christianity. I um, didn't want anything to do with Christians. I had a few encounters that were negative, and I had completely written Christianity off, and I believed that Christians were on a lower uh, level of spiritual evolution, and they were, you know, in a in a place where they believed they had to believe the Bible, and they had to be told what to believe. I saw them very much as not really thinking for themselves, and that that was my view of Christians. And I also thought they were probably afraid of all the stuff I was, you know, studying and doing that. They didn't understand it, so they were afraid of it. And, you know, that's where I was spiritually. And I I was extremely resistant to anything about sin or, you know, Jesus being someone who had to die on the cross. Of course, I knew about it from the churches I had gone to. I knew the story. I had heard sermons about Jesus dying on the cross for sins. It never meant anything to me. I never understood why that was necessary. And um, I just totally didn't want to hear it. I mean, to me, Jesus was, he was like Buddha or Krishna. He was a very advanced um, spiritual person who had probably lived many lives. And he was, um, he had come back. At the time, at the time we, we knew him as Jesus, he was the, um, avatar for the age of Pisces. And in astrology, um, you have these different ages. They each last about 2000 years and they're based on the orientation of the North Pole towards certain constellations. And this is actually a, a real astronomical fact that's called the precession of the equinox. And gradually, um, because of the tilt of the Earth, the orientation of the North Pole changes gradually over 2,000 years and it goes through the constellations backwards. So it doesn't go Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, <clears throat> Leo, etc. It goes backwards, you know, Gemini to Taurus to Aries to Pisces then to Aquarius. And so... The belief by astrologers and by most New Agers even today is that Jesus um, ushered in the age of Pisces. He was the avatar. And in the New Age, um, the avatar is a spiritual being who incarnates at will and comes to Earth at a time of crises in order to teach humanity a lesson. And so Jesus came in order to usher in the age of Pisces, which in astrology is an age of purging, self-sacrifice, and lessons on love. So the fact that he died on the cross made a lot of sense from the astrology and New Age viewpoint because that was the self-sacrifice, the martyrdom that is exemplified by the sign of Pisces. So you see how um, people in the New Age can <laughs> give these meanings to things and they see Jesus through this filter of belief in the age of Pisces. And you can, you can just go down the line. I mean, Pisces is the sign of the fish. Well, 
you know, Jesus had fishermen disciples. Um, there's a lot of things, of course, about the fish in the New Testament, and the fish was a symbol that the early Christians used, and even now for for Christianity and for Jesus. So all of this made a lot of sense um, to New Age people and to to me. And that's how I saw Jesus. That was the Jesus that I believed in. And I got into very esoteric, hidden meaning stuff from the Bible. Like I, I was writing for some New Age magazines. Also, I was also a speaker. I spoke um, at some places. Like I spoke at the Lions Club. I spoke at Parents Without Partners. Um, you know, I spoke even at an elementary school to, I think it was like a third or fourth grade class. Uh, um, you know, a public school, and um, and I also spoke at a believe it or not a, a lunch a lunch and learn thing for seniors that was sponsored by seven churches in Atlanta, <laughs> and I even got to speak about astrology there. So I was I was a public speaker on astrology, and I was also writing, and I wrote about um, you know Jesus and the age of Pisces. Um, I had a long series on that topic uh so this is where i was this is where i was spiritually all through the 80s and in uh, 1990 uh that do you want me to go ahead and tell what happened how this all changed yeah i think that'd be a pretty important part that's what i'm wondering too how did you okay you're, you're in deep you can't stand Christians. We're on the low end of evolution. So how did you come to be on the low end of spiritual evolution? <laughs> <laughs> right. How did I, um, how did I devolve? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yes, I was, I was, um, well, the very, the, towards the end of 1989, my marriage ended and I knew that I would need some kind of job because the, money from astrology wasn't enough and you know I had my son who was living with me so I needed to find something that would support us better and at that point one of my clients called me and offered me um, a part-time job in his office and what he wanted me to do was actually look at the birth data of the employees and then give him advice on the employees based on their birth data. So I was supposed to come up with astrological information. Now, ideally, you need the time of birth. And, of course, I wasn't able to get that. But you can do a, you can do a general chart just based on the birth date. And he also just felt that I was able to give him advice from a perspective of he saw me as somebody who had this spiritual uh, kind of level of knowledge and understanding. And he actually saw me as sort of a, a psychic. Uh, and he was not only um, a client, he was also a student. I had been teaching astrology. Uh, I started teaching astrology around 1986. I'd been teaching astrology for a few years. No, I started teaching, I'm sorry, before that. I had started teaching astrology. And so I'd been teaching for several years. And he was one of my students as well. And so he offered me a very good income. So, of course, I took it, took this job. But the people in the office, of course, did not know why I was there. They 
they had no idea it had anything to do with astrology and 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 it wasn't clear i don't think they really knew they didn't understand what i was doing there. <laughs> um but they didn't nobody really asked me so i i got by with it and i was working there in the spring of 1990 when i started to get this really strange compulsion to go to a church but not any specific church just in general to go to a church and um i really didn't understand it and so i just kind of ignored it you know i thought i was imagining it and uh, but as time went by it didn't go away it it just got stronger and it was really bothering me a lot i was very disturbed by it because it wouldn't go away and in august of that year i went to an astrological New Age conference in Oregon. It was my second time going there. I had gone two years earlier and I had done some workshops. And so the um it was actually the publisher of one of the magazines I wrote for who put on these conferences and he paid my way and paid for my stay in a hotel. So of course I went. And at that conference Um there were some uh, I don't I won't go into it cuz it would take too much time but there were a few strange things that happened that I didn't understand that made me one made me feel like something was going on and when I got back to Atlanta this desire to go to a church w- was still there and so I thought well you know it's just not going away so I guess I'm just going to go to a church and once I do that I'll get it out of my system and i rationalized it by telling myself that it was probably something from a previous uh life in which i had been a christian <laughs> so i thought okay you know i probably had something happen to me in one of my previous lives when i was a christian and it's an unfinished business kind of thing and so i have to go into a church and resolve this unfinished business this unfinished issue So I went to a very very large church in downtown Atlanta. And I um sat in the back and I was planning actually to leave early. I thought I'll stay for about 15 or 20 minutes and then I'll just quietly, you know, leave and go out the door and no one will notice cuz I'm sitting way in the back and I'm sitting on the end of the pew, you know, by the aisle. So the service started and everyone stood up and they had a procession down the aisle from the back and it was the ministers and the choir and in front of this procession was a young boy who was carrying a cross and he was walking slowly down the aisle and of course I wasn't paying any attention I was just standing like everyone else and actually feeling very uncomfortable being in a church and as he walked by me this really unexpected thing happened i felt this overwhelming love uh falling on me from above it was what i call this waterfall of love coming down on me from above and completely just kind of just drowning me in a way i mean i it was very very intense and the thing is is i knew this was from a personal god i didn't hear any voices or anything but i knew 
This was a personal God telling me he loved me. And it was completely unprecedented in my life to have any experience like this. And I I just didn't know what to make of it. I knew it was real. But, you know, of course, it was a contradictory experience for me because I didn't believe in a personal God. And yet this was a personal God. <laughs> and And so I couldn't reconcile those two things in my mind. And I just stood there, and I was quietly crying, and I just stood there, and I ended up staying for the whole service. And after I went home, I thought about it, and I didn't understand what it meant. And I wrote in my journal that something had happened, but I didn't know what it was. But no matter what it was, I was not going to leave my spiritual path. I was completely dedicated to the spiritual path I was on, which was the New Age path. And I had no plans of leaving it, no matter what kind of experience I had had. So that was how I I took it. But I went back to the church uh, the following Sunday, and I continued going there. Now, this church was very, very open-minded, and it was not a uh, dogmatic church. I mean, it was not a church where you were really hearing the gospel. It was not a church where people were, were, you know, making very clear-cut doctrinal statements. Let me put it that way. So I felt very comfortable there because, you know, I, nobody was really evaluating me. I even told a few people I was an astrologer, and actually a few of them wanted my business card. So I thought, you know, maybe I can get some clients from this church. <laughs> and I thought, so I thought this was kind of a helpful thing. And I um, even was taking a, a Sunday school class, and then someone invited me to a smaller group that was meeting with the minister of the church. And this person who invited me, who was a disenchanted Catholic, this was an Episcopal church, by the way, where all this took place, um, she's the one who invited me, and when she asked me what I believed, I told her I was pretty much a, a Zen Buddhist, and she said, well, you know, you can be Christian and Buddhist at the same time. And I said, well, yeah, I know that. And so I thought she was okay with my identity, and so everything was fine. So I started going to this this group, um, which was going through the, the Gospel of Mark. Now, at the same time this was happening, I started getting this impression that God didn't like astrology. And I really didn't understand where it was coming from. Nobody at the church had said anything to me that astrology was wrong or anything. But it was very clear that this God who had shown me this love was now telling me he didn't like astrology. Well, I didn't want to accept that, of course, so I just ignored it. And... I was going to this class, which turned out to be a group of people planning to be confirmed in the church um, at Easter, at the following Easter. And I said, oh, you know, I'm not going to be confirmed. And, and they were like, oh, okay, you can still stay in the group, you know. So I was trying to do two things. I was being an astrologer in a new age, and here I was in this church. Um, even though it was this very open-minded church, it was... It was, uh, you know, there were scripture readings during in the liturgy. There were prayers. There were a lot of references to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was having an effect on me. 
I knew it was having an effect on me, but I didn't know what kind of effect it was. I just knew something was happening. And as this was going on, this impression from God became an impression that he wanted me to give astrology up. And um, now I had gone to this church on Labor Day weekend. Um, that was my initial visit. It was Labor Day weekend, so it was had been early September of 1990. And now the impression that I need to give astrology up was happening um, around the end of October, around this time of year, as a matter of fact. And um, I didn't understand this at all, and I thought that was the last thing I could do was give astrology up because, you know, it was my work, and I was kind of kind of known. I was actually had just finished being president of the Astrological Society earlier that year, and I was chairperson of the curriculum committee, and I, I was on four committees at the Astrological Society. So the idea of giving it up was just beyond comprehension to me. I didn't want to do that. So, of course, I resisted that. But that was so powerful that God wanted me to give it up. I actually... I actually made the decision to give it up, and this happened the night before Thanksgiving of 1990. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what I was going to tell my my clients or my friends. I just was, it was just a complete, I was just completely in sort of a limbo, I guess. You know, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't have anyone really to talk to about it. Um, I did go see the minister and told him, and he was—he started reading me some things from the Old Testament about divination and how they would read. He told me they would read the entrails of animals um, and do this divination, and, and it was clear God was condemning it. But I didn't really understand what it had to do with astrology. I wasn't making the connection. I think he wanted he, he wanted me to make the connection. But it still kind of sealed the deal, so to speak. I thought it was confirmation that, yes, indeed, this God, this personal God up there who somehow was focusing on me for some reason, <laughs> wanted me to give astrology up. I really had no idea what was going on. I mean, I had no idea. I gave astrology up, and I had to start telling clients who called me that I no longer practiced astrology. There were a lot of things happening around that time as well. There were things going on um, that I think showed a spiritual battle going on. Uh, but I didn't understand it at the time. And so then I thought, well, if I'm giving astrology up, I guess I'll start reading the Bible. Well, I really didn't have a desire to read the Bible, but for some reason thought I should. So I started with Matthew chapter 1, and I started reading just a little bit every night. Now, I started this in early December, and I got to Matthew 8, and a few days before Christmas. And it was while I was reading Matthew 8 that God opened my eyes, and... Just, I mean, it is literally, you hear that analogy of the light going on in a dark room. That is exactly what it was like. 
I mean, that's the best analogy I can think of. It's like one moment I was in complete spiritual darkness, and then the light was turned on, and the next moment I understood I understood who Jesus was. I realized why he had died on the cross. I realized I had been going on a spiritual path away from God, that I had been believing in a false Jesus. Now, I didn't necessarily think in these terms. I didn't think, oh, I've been believing in a false Jesus. It's just that I realized all these things in in my mind. I realized them. And I realized that I was separated from God, really separated from God, and that the only way that I could be have a relationship with God, although, again, I wasn't thinking in these terms, was through giving my life to Christ. And that's exactly what I did at that moment. And that was the moment I was born again. And I knew as soon as I did that, I realized I was a different person. I mean, nothing dramatic happened, but I knew I was different. I could tell. I could tell something had changed completely in me. And I knew that I belonged to Christ. Those were the the two things I knew. And... Um, so at that point, of course, things really changed. Um, I had to tell my boss, who was on leave at the time, but when he came back in January, I had to tell him I couldn't do the astrology anymore. And he was very nice about it, and, and he said he would give me, you know, other work, which he did. So I continued to work there, and I was still there in April. And there was a young man who worked in that office who who knew. I, I, after I'd started working there, I gradually let some people know I was an astrologer, although I never, never, never told them that was why I was there. And I don't think any of them knew that was why I was there. I don't think they ever knew it. But this young man um, came into my office one day, and I, and I knew he was a Christian. And he had befriended me, but he never try to quote-unquote witness to me or tell me that astrology was evil or anything. He just sort of befriended me. And he came into my office and I said, you know, it's really strange that a few months ago I was an astrologer and I hated Christians and now I am a Christian. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's still just, it's just very strange. I'm still sort of processing it. And he kind of smiled, and he said, well, maybe someone was praying for you. And I said, no, no, I don't know anybody who would pray for me. And then I saw this little smile on his face, and I said, wait a minute, were you praying for me? And he said, well, he said, I was praying with a group at my church. He said, we've been praying for you. We prayed for you ever since you came here, and I found out you were an astrologer. So they had been praying for me all during 1990." When all of those events took place and the draw, the compulsion to go to a church, the impression from God that, you know, I, I he didn't like astrology and then I should give it up and starting to read the Bible. These people, this this small group of a, a young adult fellowship at a Methodist church south of Atlanta had been praying for me. And I was pretty overwhelmed by that. I really was. And, you know, that I think that I think that shows that, you know, nobody is beyond the reach of God, no matter how hardened they are, no matter 
how hostile they are to the gospel. Um, if you can't witness to them, you can pray for them because my, I think my story shows, you know, that, that that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. This group was praying for me and it glorified God. Um, it just, it's just to me, it's kind of an unusual testimony and I think that you know, the Lord had his purposes, of course, for doing it this way. But I think one reason is it encourages people who have family or friends involved in some kind of unbelief system, especially something like the New Age or the occult, who are very resistant to the gospel. You can't talk to them about Jesus sometimes. But my story shows prayer. God wants us to pray. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's certainly an incredible story, and you've been out of a movement for how long now? Well, that was the very, very end of 1990, so we're coming up on, um, I think that's 24, um, 24 years, right? Mm-hmm. This will be, this December, like right before Christmas, will be mm-hmm. 24 years as a Christian. And now you've founded your own ministry dedicated to reaching people in the New Age movement. Right. And this ministry was another thing that the Lord did. It was not my idea. Um, And it just, God gradually opened doors for me to share my story. And I started talking to some youth groups. And then I spoke at some conferences. And all the while I was working full time. Um, And then... You know, people were encouraging me to think of full-time ministry, including the missions pastor mm-hmm. at my church. And and then God, I spent a year kind of pondering this, and the Lord just showed me at different different thing, different events and things that happened that there was a real need for this ministry, and I really felt that is what He wanted me to do. So I started the ministry part time. In 94, but I went full-time in 1998, and I actually operate as a missionary. Um, and my mission board is Fellowship International Mission, which is located in Allentown, Pennsylvania. But I live in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Now, I set up a starter show that Gary Habermas had advised me to not very study the occult directly. And I, I said, are you saying this just me? He said, no, I'd say this anyways that you go to talk to people who have come out via car. What do you think about that advice? I agree with that. And um, I I usually tell people if they want to know about this area not to look at the primary sources. And mm-hmm. I agree I agree with him because uh, I don't know that people realize how seductive some of this stuff is. Mm-hmm. It's not only seductive, but it's very subtle. And the deception in it is such that you can buy into a little bit of it if you're reading the material without realizing it. And and then it kind of works on you. It works on you in this in this kind of unconscious way. Not not everybody, but it does happen to some people. And over a period of time, it starts to under, if they're a believer, it can undermine their faith. It can, re- or it can cause them to have these, these really, um, strange, um, doubts or strange ideas 
Um, I've talked to a lot of Christians who have been partially seduced by the occult and the New Age. A lot of times it's through an experience that was very seductive or powerful. And the experience will cause them then to start questioning the Bible. And once they start questioning God's word, you know, then they're on a kind of a downward spiral, so to speak. Um, I personally don't believe a Christian can lose their salvation. However, I do think your your um, relationship with the Lord can be undermined and damaged by a lot of things, not just by the occult New Age. Of course, it can be damaged by other things that you could do. But this is an area that definitely can do it. But the thing is that it's so subtle and you don't realize that it's happening while it's happening. So I, I yes, I agree with Gary Habermas on that advice. Yeah, and I'd like people to know that this is one area where usually if I'm telling you, if you're studying history, if you're studying science, anything of this, go to the primary sources. But in this case, yeah, it's pretty dangerous to do that a lot, to uh, go that route. And um, I really liked how you brought out experiences as a point, because really in the church today, I see this, this frightening trend that we're very much experienced oriented and something okay. I've told people before is that we have this great danger that we tend to interpret the scripture by our experiences instead of interpreting our experiences by the scripture yes um, I agree with you Nick I think that there is um, a trend towards subjective experience and subjective interpretations of things and as you said, interpreting maybe scripture through experience mm-hmm. and rather than, you know, interpreting our experience through scripture. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's a subtle shift, but it's a very, um, it's a very negative, damaging one. And I, I see that more and more. And I, I don't know if it's an effect of kind of the postmodern culture, which is very subjective and, relativistic it may be partly coming from that and so you have people who think if something gives you a good experience or it seems spiritual or it works then it must be okay Mm -hmm. and that's a that's not good criteria for a christian when you're dealing with a spiritual matter years ago i remember being at a church where i was actually teaching some apologetics classes at it and being in a sermon, and the sermons were incredibly fluffy. Honestly, two of them were so bad. When the final music was playing, I walked out. I didn't care if people saw me. I walked out. It was so bad. But I've never got that one point. Someone, uh, the, the pastor said, you know, when I go to people anymore, I don't ask them if they're saved. I ask them if they're experiencing God. Like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe I heard that. <laughs> yeah, well... I know, and and then you have to ask, well, you know, what what kind of God does somebody mean? Um, because, you know, even the idea of God in our culture in general has so many different um, interpretations, and, and uh, polls keep showing that a large percentage of people in, in the United States believe in God, but I think if you ask a lot of those people who God is, you're going to get different answers and a lot of them are not going to be 
um, answers that match the God of the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's going to be uh, something more vague or something, um, you know, something that is just uh, perhaps something like the God of love who only loves and there's no judgment and there's no real moral, um, you know, moral content to that idea of God. So the word God is so general now in our culture that it's, and it's not, I think even in the church, people don't know the attributes of God and um, are, are confused about the attributes of God. I think that's an area that, we all could study more and keep in mind because that to me is a beginning point for a sound theology is really knowing the attributes of God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the experience thing, it's not just the New Age movement that can also get people sucked in with not having a good foundation. I'm thinking that someone could get so caught up in their experiences and then here comes these men at their door who are wearing these this these black pants and these nice white shirts and they have these name badges and say, Hi, I'm Elder So and so from Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints and then as soon as you have the burning the bosom experience, where well, there you go, Mormonism is true and unfortunately the church has been setting them right up for it. Yes, and unfortunately they do get people that are at least nominal Christians. Um, very easily that way because they seem to be representing a Christian denomination. They talk about Jesus. They talk about God. And then they tell you, you know, you, you, if you get this experience, this burning in the bosom, then, you know, that's God telling you that the Book of Mormon is true. And so once you start relying on experiences for the truth, you are going to really you're going to just go off into directions that have no substance. And that is actually a core belief of the New Age, is that your experience is truth. And that's why in in the New Age, um, there is no absolute. There's no absolute good or evil. Um, there's no real absolute in terms of any moral, moral truth or moral being. Um, you know, the only thing they might use the word absolute for is maybe the absolute or ultimate reality, but it doesn't have any um, moral content to it. And so everything is about, you know, your truth is your truth. And for me, my truth, what I experience as truth is my truth. And when I was in the New Age, I actually believed that there were different levels of truth. So, you know, if you were a Christian... You were on this one level where you saw truth through the Christian viewpoint. And if you were um, maybe an atheist, you saw truth through the atheist viewpoint. If you were Buddhist, through the Buddhist viewpoint, etc. And I felt there were all these different levels of truth, and they appeared contradictory. But they actually were not contradictory, that we were all just seeing different facets of one truth and that eventually we would see that all these truths merged or they were all part of the same truth. And I felt everybody was spiritually evolving toward that point, that eventually we would all get to that point. And that's a very, very common view in the New Age. Mm-hmm. Well, right now we're about, uh, we've in this discussion about an hour or so, so I can remind people that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast my guest is Marsha Montenegro, talking about how she came out of the New Age movement. And normally, I tell you about who's going to be on next week, 
But actually, we haven't got anyone booked just yet. So I'm going to make sure we get a guest to best my ability. But I, you know, if you all have some suggestions of X amounts of who you'd like to see on the show, let me know. I'd really like to hear that. You can leave it in an iTunes review, which I'd appreciate emails. But I am going to be working and seeing if I can get a good guest in a map where I'll find something we can talk about that's interesting for a couple of hours. Now, now we got Marsha Montenegro here now. A lot of people are, are wondering, let's keep this close to home here, because they're saying, well, you know, I have no interest in being caught in any arrangement, but what I'm really concerned is that next week, my kids want to go trick-or-treating, and should I really be practicing Halloween if I'm a Christian? Okay, the big Halloween question. <laughs> um, yes, I, um, of course, am asked about Halloween quite a bit. Um, interestingly enough, that is my birthday, and um, and a lot of people find that um, kind of ironic or funny uh, that I'm born on Halloween, and uh, not only that, but my son was born on Halloween, too, so he was born on my birthday. <laughs> I would love to know what the odds of that are exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, especially for somebody who was an astrologer. And had clients who were Wiccans who do celebrate, you know, Halloween as one of their eight holidays in the year. And then now as a Christian with a ministry dealing with the New Age and the occult, um, you know, the fact that my birthday is Halloween sometimes is a jumping off point for discussion with non-Christians. When they, if, if in some way they find out it's my birthday, it often, it often becomes a discussion. Um, yeah, now Halloween is one of those very commercialized days in our culture that has a lot of different stories um, about its beginnings. It is, it is just a mess in terms of trying to pin down the history. And I realize there is a parallel story now. I've read a couple of things on the Internet about the Christian origins of Halloween, connecting it to, you know, All Hallows Eve and Saints Day, All Saints Day, which is November 1st, and the whole history of that, and trying to show that really goes back before these pagan um, overtones of Halloween. Now, I have not done enough uh, reading on all the history, and to tell you the truth, to me, the history does not interest me that much. Um, I do see the pagan um, connections to it, of course. And I realize that neo-pagans like witches and Wiccans do see it as a holiday. It's the time of year when the days are shorter and the nights are beginning to get longer. It's a seasonal holiday. Undoubtedly, it was celebrated um, in pagan cultures way back uh, with certain rituals because they celebrated different seasonal holidays, and the seasons were very important. And as as uh, from a pagan viewpoint, you know, you had the pagan gods, so the pagan gods were connected to the seasons and what happened with the change of seasons. So there are all, all kinds of mythology and pagan stories that go along with it and these and these rituals, and mostly Celtic rituals that would have happened um, in the Celtic um, areas of, of uh, 
the world. And um, now, having said all that, to me what counts the most is how is the holiday observed today and how is it viewed by the culture at large. Right now, the way the secular culture sees it, mostly, is a combination of a day for children to get candy and dress up and have parties, maybe, and maybe for the adults to have parties as well, and also a day that is, quote-unquote, spooky and is connected to, you know, haunted houses and ghosts and witches and scary things. That's Of course, all you have to do is walk into a drugstore or any store right now and you can see the decorations or even people are putting them out on their their yard with Halloween coming up next Friday. So there is a focus on the scary stuff and what, from a Christian viewpoint, some of it would be evil. Um, You know, like dressing up as a witch or dressing up as a ghost or wanting to watch ghost stories. Okay. So we have, what we have to do here, in my opinion, is, is sift through what is just the commercial and harmless and what is glorifying evil. Um, because a day in and of itself cannot be evil. It's just another day on the calendar. There's nothing um, especially evil about the day itself. People don't have to be fearful just because it's October 31st. And I I need to say that because some people are. Some people do think there's some kind of evil force that's unleashed on October 31st. So you have... There's no truth to the claims, for instance, that the cultists are gathering that day and they're offering up all their sacrifices on that day. There's no, yeah, there's no, there's no plot to, um, like, you know, kidnap babies or children and, and kill them or something like that. That's, you hear a lot of urban legends and of course there are movies. There's a lot of scary movies that may have that kind of theme. Um, but that's really, that's not the way it is. And so what you have is you have the commercial observance, which, is mostly, um, you know, pretty hard. I don't see anything wrong with carving pumpkins. I don't see anything wrong with dressing up. I do think that Christians should not um, put costumes on that glorify anything connected or seen as connected to the occult as like a ghost or a, um, you know, witch. I, I don't I don't think that's a good idea, personally. Uh, if some Christians want to have their children go trick-or-treating and they're dressed in costumes that aren't evil, <laughs> um, I think that is their decision, that if the parents want to do that, that's their decision, or if they want to give candy to kids coming to the door. Then there are Christians who don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to participate in it. They see it as a day when evil is celebrated, and in some cases that's true with all the ghost and witch stuff. Um, and so they don't feel their conscience is telling them to have nothing to do with it. And I think that should be respected. So I see it kind of as a Romans 14 issue. Um, but the parents who feel okay with it should not judge the Christians who don't feel okay with it. And the Christians who are not okay with it should not be judging the Christians who are okay with it. We definitely should not be judging each other on on this Matter that is, I have a very strong view on that. In fact, on my website, um, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org, I have a little Halloween statement for Christians that I wrote several years ago. Um, so, all in all, 
Um, I think we have to be aware of how a lot of the secular world sees the holiday. We also need to be aware it is a day when Wiccans and neo-pagans will have rituals. They will have rituals on that day, which in their minds is connected to nature and any gods or goddesses they believe in. Um, so it will be connected to that. And some witches and Wiccans see their gods and goddesses as symbolic and not as real. Others see them as representing forces of nature. Others see their gods and goddesses as something within themselves. So there's a range of views on the gods and goddesses in the neo modern neo-pagan religions. And then you have the other group, the Satanists. They also celebrate October 31st, but they do it very differently from the witches. Um, they have their own view of it, their own, you know, rituals. They're pretty much apart from society. The serious Satanists are very private. And in my opinion, I don't think there's that many of them. There's no reason to be fearful about them. And several years ago, when people were asking me, of course, about Halloween all the time, you know, it came to me that it would be a very good day for Christians to pray for people who are involved in the occult, who are involved in neo-pagan religions like Wicca and witchcraft, who are involved in Satanism, that that would be a productive thing for all Christians to do, that to let October 31st remind them the, the people observing that holiday in a spiritual way are, are in darkness and need the light of Jesus Christ, and we can pray for them. So to me, that is a way to take that day and turn it around as a day um, for prayer to the Lord and ask that he would be glorified by praying, praying for these people and that maybe somewhere, you know, something would happen that day to open the eyes of somebody who's involved in a pagan ritual on October 31st. So I, I, um, if I didn't cover anything there, you know, let me know. But I think I, I tried to cover the whole range of the Halloween, <laughs> the Halloween possibilities. <laughs> I, I think it's very interesting you start talking some about the origins of Halloween. And personally, I'm skeptical about claims of paganism because I've studied similar claims about Christmas and Easter, I'm like, yeah, those are bogus. And then I hear the pagan copycat myth constantly, I'm like, yeah, that's also bogus. So excuse me if I get, if I just generally jump to think, yeah, it's probably not likely to be true anyway. But one of the main analogies I use is that a lot of people will say that, for instance, wedding rings, I've heard, have been supposed to have a pagan origin. Uh, if someone came to me and they were able to, demonstrate conclusively, historically, that yes, wedding rings did have a pagan origin. I'd go, hmm, fine, that's nice. And I'd keep wearing mine because I know why I wear my ring. I'm not wearing it to give a tribute to a pagan deity. When Ali and I made our, our vows, it was not made to Odin or Zeus or any pagan god whatsoever. It was done before God and the church. And that is what my ring symbolizes. And, heck, if this was really a pagan day and we've taken it and we've instead turned it to a day where we go around and gather candy and play pranks on each other, I think we've claimed a victory. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point about the wedding rings, because I think I had read that, too, about the origin of wedding rings. And certainly there are probably um, some things we do in weddings or other kinds of, of, of rituals or ceremonies that may have some pagan origins. And that is because, uh, you know, I don't know if it does or not, but it could be because our world is very pagan. We are in a world that has fallen away from from God. It is a fallen world, and it has had a lot of history of pagan beliefs and people who rejected um, the true God. So, of course, the the pagan type of of um, ceremonies or whatever that may have been around for a while permeate the culture over time. They may change. Uh, form, but I'm sure there's, you know, there's probably some pagan stuff that's around from different things. And that's why, to me, the point is not so much the origin of it, but how is it viewed today? And is it something that glorifies something against God? And that, to me, that's what it looks like. So, of course, wearing wedding rings does not go against God. If anything, like you said, it represents the vows you took before God in your marriage and that's what and in our culture at large people don't look at wedding rings as pagan they see it as a symbol of marriage and so i think that's why in the occult you have kind of a mixed bag because you do have some people who view it from an occult viewpoint and still see it you know they do see it as a pagan holiday then you have the commercial view of the trick and treat and and parties and then you have the christian view of it's all hallows eve and so we have a real mixed bag of halloween i think Actually, each year it gets more and more complicated for me to answer answer a question. You know, what about Halloween? It's getting harder and harder to answer it because you have this whole mixed thing going on. But so that that's why we have to have a focus. And the focus is, what am I going to do on Halloween? You know, to, I'm, I'm not going to do anything that dishonors God. I'm not going to participate in anything that appears to be honoring something evil. So then you go from there. Okay, maybe you decide not to participate at all. Maybe you decide you can participate in something that is that has the harmless aspect like carving a pumpkin or something, um, and you make your decision there. And I think that's the core of how to approach something like Halloween. Yeah, and I often think that too often Christians live in fear of anything just as soon as you say the word pagan. And that's really no way for us to live at all. And my wife and I, we, we enjoy the season. We'll go out and we'll get some candy in case any trick-or-treaters come by, which they never do, which leaves us with this awful dilemma of what are we supposed to do with all this leftover Halloween candy. It, it, it's such a such a brain teaser. It's so hard to figure out. It. I mean, it's not like we intentionally go out and buy candy we happen to like, after all. <laughs> then we go to the, uh, the stores and we look at the costumes and we think, hmm, if we went to a party this year, what would we dress up as? And I, I think the main one we talked about considering this year was, for instance, uh, we saw Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. But, hmm, that would be pretty interesting to go. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going out there and you're just having fun and you know why you're doing it and you have no desire whatsoever to worship any pagan gods or such, don't worry about it. 
Yes, I and I agree, and I, I, I agree. I think you have the right attitude, and I also think that those who don't want to participate, who feel like somehow it would hurt their conscience, mm-hmm. should not judge you yeah. um, or anyone else who wants to do, for example, what you may do, dressing up as you know Julius Caesar and Cleopatra and, and handing out candy or whatever the case may be. You know, I've I've gone through different stages with it when I was initially a new believer. I didn't want to participate in it. You know, I was very close to, you know, having had all these Wiccan and pagan, neo-pagan friends. I knew they observed the holiday. And so I was so extremely aware of it. I felt like I couldn't, you know, observe it at all in any way. And I didn't give candy out or anything. You know, as time went by and I was able to have more of a perspective on, on how you deal with things as a Christian, you know, then I started with passing out tracks along with the candy to kids you know and a lot of christians do that um some christians um sometimes some churches will have an outreach uh, day maybe at their church where they invite kids from the neighborhood to come to the church for games and then they'll give stories about jesus and they'll give the gospel and it's a way of reaching out to unchurched families in the area, I think that's a very good way to, in my opinion, to use the holiday. So there again, you, we can't see it as a, as totally mar- write it off as a complete evil thing because, you know, God knows what are you honoring, what are you not honoring in your heart. And, um, since the day is such a mixed bag of different things, then we can't just put it in one category. And completely write it off. But there again, I am I am not going to judge anyone who feels that they can't participate. Well, we're nearing the hour and 20-minute mark of our show. And so before getting into the next category of what I think we can talk about, I'd like to remind everyone that everything we do here is listener-supported. There's no pay that we get for doing this. I don't have a larger network of me that pays for the show. I'm not able to pay my guest coming on. Everything we did do here is supported by donations. And I really want to encourage you all to consider donating. If, if you're benefiting from what we're doing here, if you're learning a lot from these conversations and learning how to evangelize your friends and do something to take part in the harvest here and help by making a donation, especially if you can become a monthly donor. The way to do that, you can go to my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com. There's a donate button there. That will take you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and W. Lacona. And you can make a donation there. And then you email me, or you email Mike's wife, Debbie, afterwards, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters and Deeper Waters, or I want to be set up as a monthly donor. Can you arrange that? We will make sure it gets taken care of, and your donation will be tax deductible. There's also on Amazon, I've got some ebooks out. I've got Defining Inerrancy written with my ministry partner. We've got Christian Answers for today, this generation's questions. And there's a couple of others that are on the way. I've got one coming out which is a dialogue with an atheist god and natural disasters it's, it, it's going to be a rather long one so be ready for that one and then sure one if you liked the series I've done on the apostles Creed, that's going to be turned into an ebook as well that could be coming out maybe around mid-December or so, so 
in the three life event series, we look at them. And then finally at our, uh, our blog page, we got an Amazon store and we want to buy work. Go look see if I've got it for sale first. If I do, you can buy it there. And now, Marshall, you have your own ministry. How is it that people can donate to you? Yes, thanks for um, asking that, Nick. Uh, my ministry is called Christian Answers for the New Age, um, but I don't take donations directly if people want a tax deduction. If they want a tax deduction, um, they would send uh, a donation through my mission board, which is Fellowship International Mission. They can go to fim.org. Um, by the way, there's no www there. If you put a www in, you get the wrong website. So it's just fim.org. And at the top of that page, you have an option for support a missionary. And they have um, um, a section there on giving and various ways to give online there. Or you can call FIM. And there's information online about that if they want to become a monthly supporter. I am supported by um, several churches and individuals who give either monthly or quarterly. And then people, there are people who give sporadically. And that is my income, um, except now and then I may get um, paid for a writing job. But, um, you know, 90% or more of what I live on is donations, and it is um, through FIM, and you will get a tax deduction for that. Or if you want, you know, if you want to ask me more about it, you can contact me through my website, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. I also have a page on, on my website called About Cana. Cana, C-A-N-A is the acronym for my ministry, and it it also gives information there about how to give to the ministry. Mm-hmm. Now, let's switch to another topic, and this is one I saw brought up in the Christian Projects Alliance, and one that I wanted to bring up. That there was a movie that's come out, and I believe it was yesterday, or it was today, the one called Ouija, or Ouija, however it's pronounced, and about kids using the Ouija board. And, you know, what's the big deal? I mean... My, my dad and I, when we when I was growing up, we used to play with, for instance, the magic eight ball, you know, shaking it, getting a fun answer or a yes or no question. And really, isn't this the same kind of thing going on? Well, um, yeah, I'm asked about both of those things, of course, the Ouija board and the magic eight ball. Mm-hmm. Um, I do make a distinction between them. Um, the magic eight ball um, has certain answers already in it. It can only have those, I don't know, what is it? Is it eight answers? Um, That'd be I fitting. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those. It's something very arbitrary and based totally on chance. Um, the Ouija board, however, and in, in this case, uh, the history of the Ouija board makes a difference because it was designed as a tool for communication with the dead. It started in the 1800s in France, and it was started by a man who was a spiritualist who had read about similar devices used actually by the ancient Greeks, um, according to him, in contacting the dead. And 
he wanted to come up with something similar that would be, in his mind, an easier way to contact the dead than what they were doing at the time. Um, and, of course, spiritualism was really beginning to blossom in the 1800s. And he came up with an early version of the Ouija board. It was very different where you had a, a pencil and, um, you, and you would, it would write. It was almost like automatic writing. Well, eventually, um, that evolved into something easier to use and it was, uh, the rights to it were bought, um, in around 1900 or so or, or a little before that in the 1890s. And it was called the Talking Board. Now, there were a lot of different versions of this. Once this came out in the form of a board, much like the Ouija board we see today, it's all, all kinds of people started producing variations on it. And it became very, very popular. And people were using it, supposedly, to contact the dead. That was the idea of it. Um, by the way, I do want to mention that I have a whole chapter on the Ouija board in my book, since we're talking um, about the occult, I have a book called Spellbound, The Paranormal Seduction of Today's Kids. And it's a book I was asked to write um, by David C. Cook as a guide on the occult for Christian parents. And that's what the book is. And I cover everything I know in the occult based on Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12 which is the passage in the Bible where God lists all the practices of the occult. Um, so, you know, um, things like uh, where he's forbidding um, contact with the dead, spiritism, witchcraft, reading omens, um, etc. There's a whole list in that passage, and I use that passage as the basis for my book. So I have a chapter on the Ouija board that's quite detailed. In fact, I was rereading it today. And I had forgotten I had so much in in this chapter um, because there's quite a history to it. And what finally happened is um, there was a man named Elijah Bond and a man named William Fold in Baltimore, Maryland, who bought who bought the rights to the board and they wanted to sell it um, with no one else being able to sell it um, in this format. And they and they called it the Ouija board. They claim the reason that they call it the Ouija board is because the board told them to use that name. They claim they asked the board for the name and that it's spelled out Ouija. Now, Ouija is O-U-I, which means yes in French, and J-A, which means yes in German. You don't, in German, of course, you would say ya, ja, but you don't pronounce it we ya, ja, you pronounce Pronounce it Ouija. Yeah, that sounds a bit so <laughs> And um, and that's supposedly how it got its name. So it really means the yes yes board. And um, when you do this board, you have a little triangle thing that you place your fingers very lightly on, either by yourself or with another person. And you ask a question, and then you wait, and you don't aren't supposed to move. And then the idea is that this little triangle, which is called a planchette, will move around and point to different letters of the alphabet or numbers on the board or yes, there's a yes and a no. And so you supposedly are getting answers from some disembodied 
discarnate spirit this way. Now, what happens um, and what I go into in my chapter in my book on it, I think sometimes, of course, people do move it, maybe on purpose. Sometimes our move, people are moving it sort of unconsciously. They don't think they're moving it, but they are. Um, sometimes nothing happens, and, you know, it just sits there and doesn't do anything. Sometimes it moves, and I do believe it moves um, demonically because actually um, <laughs> I had two encounters with this before I was a Christian. And I know in one case um, there was definitely something going on because it was moving so fast that um, the, my housemate and I were doing it. And this was after college. And I lived with three girls from my college. And so one of them and, and myself were doing this Ouija board. And it started moving so fast that we had to call in another housemate to start writing down the letters because we couldn't keep up with it. And it was giving very coherent messages, initially friendly, and then they became rather um, threatening. I don't remember now what the message was, but my friend got so scared. The housemate who was doing it with me got so scared, she just jumped up and said, she said, there's something evil here, and I'm not doing this anymore. And she left the room. Now, none of us were Christians, but she felt there was something really evil there, and she didn't want to do it anymore. And I definitely felt there was something there, whether it was evil or not, I'm not sure. I wasn't scared by the idea that it might be evil. Let me put it that way. I was intrigued. I was very, very intrigued by things like that. And I wasn't scared of any idea of, of something being evil. That was part of the reason I kept going into what I got into. <laughs> um, and so I do believe there. And also, let me say some more things about this. Um, I was very influenced by a book called Seth Speaks. Um, that actually was written in the 70s, although I read it around, I'm not sure when I read it, around 1980-81. Seth Speaks was written by a woman named Jane Roberts. Jane Roberts um, initially had been using a Ouija board and was contacted by a disembodied entity that called itself Seth. And Seth um, started giving her messages and then told her, she wouldn't need the Ouija board anymore, that he would just speak through her. And this this actually began happening, and she began kind of going into these trances, and Seth would speak through her, and her husband was transcribing or recording the messages. And these messages all ended up in a series of books called the Seth series. And Seth Speaks was the first book. I think The Nature of Personal Reality was the second book, and I don't know the name. I think there was one more book. Um, also, the husband or somebody took pictures of Jane Roberts when she was in these trances, and you can see her face is extremely contorted. Now, in my opinion, this was, def this was a demonic possession. I think that Seth was a demon who totally took over because I read Seth Speaks, and... The writing and the style and the message are extremely, um, I know this is going to sound strange, but they are extremely philosophical. It's very, um, 
heady stuff. And this is what I would call the philosophical end of of evil or the philosophy of demonic beings, the philosophy of Satan, um, which can sound extremely profound. Um, and and uh, that's one reason I was so taken with this book. Now, and, to be clear, we're not condemning philosophy when we say it's very right. Christian philosophy. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I'm not, not condemning philosophy in and of itself. Philosophy is a sound um, arena, and you can certainly, in fact, um, the study of apologetics is a part of um, philosophy, and we can use philosophy in a way that... Um, to understand things and to glorify God. There are aspects of philosophy that go against God. Like anything else, it can be used. It's like the Internet. The Internet can be great and be used to spread the gospel message or reach um, people, and it can also be used to glorify evil things. So it's a similar similar kind of thing. It's really, it's really neutral. It's an area of study. But this is a, a use, um, you know, and I don't even know if it would be considered true philosophy, but it sounds very it seems very philosophical when you're reading it. And he comes up with these very, very esoteric, metaphysical concepts in the book. Now, I have I have read a similar style in many channeled books and many channeled messages, which I read both as a non-Christian and since as a Christian as research for my ministry. And it's very similar. It's almost like it's all coming from the same place. Um, and it, and I read that same style in other channeled books, other New Age type books. Um, so I believe something really was happening with Jane Roberts and the initial contact was through the Ouija board. So I believe the Ouija board can definitely be, um, an opening for um, a, a demonic contact. And I strongly advise people not to use it. It's not a game. Um, Parker Brothers bought the rights to it in uh, 1966 when they decided to, um, when they decided to mass market it. But, um, it, 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 just because Parker Brothers bought it and they, you know, are a producer of toys and games doesn't make the Ouija board a game. So I, I do believe there is a danger in it. And I think, um, because when you're sitting there and you're asking a question and you have basically this kind of cardboard thing in front of you, um, you know that the cardboard can't hear you and can't answer you. So you're putting yourself in a position of, of seeking an answer supernaturally. It would be exactly the same as using a pendulum. So if you had a pendulum and you decided, um, you know, you had it over a sheet of paper where you had yes, no, maybe, or never, you know, or whatever, and you ask a question and then you wanted to see which way the pendulum went, and assuming you truly weren't moving it, you're asking, you're asking for a supernatural answer. And whenever you ask for a supernatural answer using those techniques, what you're doing is a form of occult divination and spirit contact, even if it's not intentional. Uh, because God certainly doesn't answer questions that way. So this is a, this is, um, the Ouija board and using the pendulum are both forms of divination and they're both forms of spirit contact. You know, Audi has even told me that she's heard of witches who are scared to use a Ouija board. 
Yes. And in fact, in, in my book, I point out that a lot of psychics and, and, and people like witches will advise. I never heard any of them endorse the Ouija board. They all said the Ouija board is dangerous. You're opening yourself up to any, any kind of spirit that wants to come in. So there is a certain amount of truth in what they're saying. Of course, they do believe you can contact a spirit if you do it the right way and that it's okay and of course that is something we as Christians reject because God forbids that and he's very strong in his denouncement of those practices um, and so uh, but yes yes that's right even people in the occult um, are usually warning about the Ouija board mm-hmm. and uh, she also has this great concern when this movie comes out that unfortunately a lot of kids are going to start getting curious about mm-hmm. it. Do you share that concern, too? Yes, I do share that concern. I think that it can initiate an interest in it, even if the movie shows that it's, you know, that terrible things happen to people who are using it. Even if the movie shows that, I've only read a very brief review of it, but I think it does show that. Um that kind of danger sometimes is very appealing to younger people. They find it very fascinating and they get intrigued by it and they get curious. And so maybe up to this point they haven't really come across a Ouija board or haven't really thought about it, but this movie may cause them to think there's really something to it and then they may decide to try it. Exactly the way I was doing with my friend. And exactly what Jane Roberts was doing and exactly what a group of uh, freshman girls were doing in my college one night. And what happened in that story is that my my roommate was the um, dorm advisor. And we got a knock on our door very late. It was like midnight or after midnight. And it was a freshman girl from down the hall. And she was crying. And she said, you have to come down, you know, to Debbie's room or whoever's room it was. And so my roommate went running down there and I followed her to see what was going on. And there was in the room, there was about four or five girls sitting on the floor crying. And in front of them was a Ouija board. And um, we got the story out of them that they had been using the Ouija board and were getting responses. And what happened was they said that all the lights were, they had some lights on, but they said all the lights in the room went off. And I don't remember, some other things happened that scared them. And this is, to me, at the time I didn't understand this, but now as a Christian, I see this as very revealing. Um, one of the girls said they asked the board its name, or they asked the spirit that they were talking to its name. And the answer was I am the Alpha and the Omega and I find that very very chilling because I clearly I mean that's the name of God and you know to me it's just more evidence of a of a demonic spirit I also want to mention before I forget that everybody in the occult and new age who are really involved in it um astrologers, mediums, psychics, palm readers, tarot card readers, and new people in the New Age, which is sort of another area, but they're connected, um, who are in it on a consistent basis and opening themselves up to this, all of them have spirit guides. 
just like I had. All of them, every single one of them. And usually among themselves, they talk about it openly. So um, all of these people have spirit guides who are, of course, fallen angels. And I told my story much earlier of of meeting my spirit guide through the guided meditation, and I never, um, I never followed up by explaining that that spirit guide was a fallen angel. Mm-hmm. You know, it just amazes me to hear this because I don't talk about this kind of stuff much. But usually, whenever somehow in conversation the topic of Ouija boards comes up, everyone seems to have a horror story of either they went through it. Or they know someone who went through it. And it is never a good story, but I hear. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, there's always some bad stories. Now, I think also there's um, some urban legends connected to it. Um, and, I, you know, I, I hear a lot of those, especially when I talk to youth groups, um, that, you know, for example, the, a common story is that, oh, my, my um, cousins, um, you know, brothers, girlfriend uh, had a Ouija board and she threw it away and then the next morning it was under her bed you know okay now I don't I personally don't believe that story but that's a kind of an urban legend that you hear about so you get the urban legends connected with I think some stories that are actually true that are actual examples of demonic uh, contact but then when you hear the urban legends Sometimes people just write the whole thing off, and they think, oh, this is just silly. People are just imagining things. They're making things up. Well, sometimes they are, but sometimes they aren't. And that's that's another way that Satan um, obscures things is that he has a mixture of things that are just outrageous and hard to believe, and that causes a lot of people to dismiss uh, the whole thing and not give any credence to the idea that there could be evil involved because they hear these outrageous stories and they just think, oh, it's so silly. All these people are imagining things and it's the Ouija board's just this game. It's just a made up toy, blah, blah, blah. And see, they just, then they dismiss everything because of this mixture of exaggerated stories and urban legends. And I see that over and over again with the occult. That's another reason. It's such a tricky area. It's very hard to sift out what is really true and what isn't true. It's extremely hard. And sometimes you can't. So God is, of course, very wise in his denunciation of this area and telling his people to have absolutely, not only to not have anything to do with it, but you don't consult people who do it. So you don't, if you look at that passage, you don't consult people who contact the dead. You know, you don't consult people who claim to have these these powers. You don't consult somebody who does divination. Um, so you don't even have to actively be doing it. You just don't consult someone who does it either. Yeah, I heard some people who say, you know, I'd like to go and visit a psychic and then sit down and tell them about Jesus the whole time. And I'm thinking, yeah, I admire your desire to evangelize, but that really sounds like a very foolish idea to me. Yes, and I, you know, Nick, I have heard that many times, and I've had people ask me about it too. You know, people who thought maybe they would do it, and they asked me what I thought of it. And my answer to that is, it is not a good idea for several reasons. Um, for one reason, you're putting the um, the psychic or astrologer or whoever it is. You're making them a captive audience, um, so they're going to resent that. 
that's that's one reason not to do it. Even if you pay them, even if you say, okay, what's your fee here? I'll give you, you know, the money, and I just want to talk to you. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Secondly, you are putting yourself in a position of perhaps getting some kind of advice from them. Um, even were they to agree to listen to you talk about Jesus, at some point they are undoubtedly going to give their views. I don't see somebody just sitting there with their mouth closed and not saying anything. You know, I don't see the psychic being totally silent. <laughs> so the psychic or whoever is going to give a response, and you are putting yourself in a, in a very vulnerable position. You're in their territory, and you are actually sitting there as somebody consulting a psychic, even if your aim is to share the gospel. Now, it's different than if you happen to meet, let's say, you happen to meet a psychic at a party or something. And, and you know, then you're you're kind of on this neutral ground. And if you want to talk, try to talk to them about Jesus, of course, yeah. I encourage Christians to witness. Um, Christians should not be afraid of psychics or witches or astrologers. Or, you know, there's no reason to fear these people. But when you go into their area where they're doing their thing, um, it, that is, that is, I think, crossing the line there that I myself, having even had psychic friends and witches as clients and friends, I would not do something like that. I just, that is crossing the line to me that is coming too close to, to dishonoring God. And, uh, of course, I wouldn't want to give money to a psychic anyway. So, yeah, there are a lot of reasons not to do that. How would you recommend we reach people who are currently at home? Well, um, I think that the most important thing to do first um, is find out what their spiritual background is. And the reason I say that is because they could come from all kinds of backgrounds. Some of, You'll find some of them were in what we might call very legalistic type churches mm -hmm. and where there were a lot of rules and they got the impression that Christianity is a matter of following, following rules and they rebelled against that or that turned them off so they left that. Um, you find people who have a background of being maybe in a dead church where it was just all about the outward appearance and, and you know, going to do certain rituals but there was absolutely no meaning behind it. They didn't hear the gospel. Or you may find people with unchurched backgrounds. So I, I think it's very important to ask that first. And if they have any kind of background that um, is Christian, or if they say they used to go to church, I, I then ask, okay, why did you reject, why are you rejecting that? Um, what is it about that church or that denomination or whatever that has caused you to go in another direction? Because then you can find out if they really know the gospel, you can find out what the issues are. And another thing to ask is what they believe. Don't assume that you know what they believe. Like if they're into, let's say they say they practice witchcraft, um, you need to ask things. Because unfortunately, a lot of Christians think witches worship Satan when actually witches don't even believe in Satan. So, you know, because if you say, oh, my goodness, why do you worship Satan? I mean, that witch will probably never want to talk to you again. So, you know, you need to say, well, what do you believe? And what do you believe? Do you have a belief in God? Do you believe anything about Jesus? Because some of them do believe Jesus lived. They believed he was around. They believed he was maybe a, a good teacher or a spiritual master or something like that. 
So you need to find out first their spiritual background. If it was Christian, why did they reject it? Who do they think of uh, uh, what they believe generally and what do they believe about God and Jesus? And really, just those questions will open the doors for a lot of things. I, I also think it's important not to try to condemn the occult to an unbeliever. Like if you're talking to somebody who's practicing um, astrology or, ter- or has tarot cards, to start telling them why they shouldn't be doing tarot cards and that it's wrong and God condemns it, it doesn't really mean anything to them if they don't have a basis a basis and a belief in, in the God of the Bible. So I think that's a wrong approach. I think you need to just set that aside and try to get on a discussion about God or a discussion that will lead to talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I've even heard you say that when you've talked to some of these people, you've actually used a method where you've asked them about what all they can do, and then you can say, I'm not very impressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, if they tell me something like, um, oh, you know, um, I can, um, I do this ritual where I can actually um, maybe hear, uh, I don't know, I can hear my plants growing, or <laughs> I can, um, I, actually one time um, some teenagers told me, that they were, I forgot what they were doing. They were doing some kind of, of magic, I think, some kind of white magic or something. And and this um, this pencil or pen, like, flew across the room. It flew from one end of the room to the other with nobody being near it. And I said, well, I said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not very impressed by that because, you know, maybe there was something that made that pencil fly across the room, but compare that to God who created the universe out of nothing. And, you know, when you put it in perspective like that, any kind of power that you that anybody may claim from the occult or they claim they contacted their, you know, their dead grandmother or something, you know, say, well, you know, all these powers that seem to be um, part of what you, you do or believe, what about creating something out of, about creating the universe out of nothing? <laughs> All the galaxies, there's so many galaxies and stars, we don't, we don't even know how many there are. Um, everything that exists and completely being, coming from God's creation, God's power to create. So, you know, I, I, um, I said that to the, uh, teens that I wasn't too impressed. Um, you know, I would depend on, on the conversation, how it was going. I, I wouldn't want to be too, um, you know, I wouldn't want to be sarcastic or anything, but I would want to try to put it in a perspective of, you know, for example, Jesus um, in Matthew 8, and actually that was the passage I was reading when God opened my eyes, was Jesus uh, rebuking the sea and the wind, for example. And the disciples had never seen anything like that. I mean, that just, I'm sure that left them, you know, pretty much speechless, at least for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. To actually get up in a boat in the middle of a raging storm and command the sea and the wind to be calm. There is no sorcery, there's no magic, there's no occult ritual that can do that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, yeah, bringing up the power, bringing up, a, maybe just give a story, the story, that story of Jesus on the boat. Say, hey, you know, I know this story about something Jesus did. And, you know, tell the story of the storm. It's very short. 
and how he did this, and that showed he had command over nature. And say, and then you have to make it clear he wasn't using magic. That he did this because he was the son of God, and he and he had was able to do that. He had that power because I do want to point this out because I don't think I said this. There are people in the occult who believe Jesus um, was a sorcerer um, or had some occult abilities. This is a very common view um, among people who are into, um, for example, ritual magic or maybe some forms of witchcraft. So you have to be very clear that Jesus didn't have these powers because he was practicing sorcery. Well, we've been at this for nearly a couple of hours now, and unfortunately it's time to start wrapping things up here. So, um, Marsha, do you have an online presence that people can go to? Um, well, yes, I, I have my website, which I mentioned, um, where I do want to mention that again, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org, because... I have a lot of articles there. If you go to the articles page, that cover a lot of New Age and occult topics. I also have my personal story there, uh, which you know some people may want want to read or share. And um, I'm on Facebook. I have a personal page just as Marsha Montenegro, and I have a page for my ministry, Christian Answers for the New Age, which I'm pretty sure is easy to find if you put that in the search box on Facebook and I post things about the new age and the occult there so those are the the three main areas where I am and I can tell people that Marsha is very easy to talk to on Facebook anytime I've had something that I've been wondering about the new age and such I've sent a message to her and she's been very prompt in getting back and even helping some of my friends out with some of their issues well thanks I'm, I'm glad that you know the Lord gives me the um, the venues, these venues to do that. Is there any final message you'd like to leave from the Deeper Waters audience today? Yeah, I think the final emphasis I would want to make is that since we've been talking about some rather dark areas and areas that some people find scary, is that as as Christians we we remember that Jesus Christ. Um, has power over all powers, over all dominions and principalities. He has rulership over all. And, of course, Christ is the one that we go to. Uh, we don't need to worry about these other powers in the sense of being afraid. We need to be careful, and we need not to cross the line and get engaged with these areas of the occult and the New Age. But we don't need to be afraid of it, and we need to remember that. Um, Christ has much more power than any kind of power that could be demonstrated by by Satan. Well, Marsha, I'd like to thank you for coming on and being my guest, especially on this Halloween time of year with these movies coming out. And I hope we'll see you again here sometime. Well, I would love it, Nick. Thank you so much for uh, this opportunity and having me on. Yeah. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we don't know who we're going to have on yet, but I will be working on it because I want to make sure you have the best. But for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.